Hello, people of the world. Thank you for listening to episode number three of the Fans First podcast. I appreciate your time and attention. My name is Scott Bruti, and this show is dedicated to featuring leaders in business, sports, and media who started out as fans first. We talk to award-winning entrepreneurs, professional athletes, high performers in business, and expert marketers in digital or social media about their life, along with the habits, tactics, and strategies that help guide them to where they are today. This episode features David Cairns, a leader in business who took an untraditional route to get to where he is now as a VP in commercial real estate. Poe Proker, of course, pro poker. While in college at McGill, he earned over $200,000 playing online poker and turned pro for three years after graduating, where he amassed over $2.5 million in total revenue during that time. Pretty astounding and not somebody you meet every day. But David Cairns joined CBRE Limited in 2012 in the downtown district of Toronto. So he is in the Toronto downtown office leasing and works on Cairns Bethel Culcutt team, which consistently is one of the top 10 leasing teams in the city of Toronto. The team focuses on the exclusive representation of tenants for the relocation, renewal, or disposition of their office premises in Toronto and across multi-markets as the single point of contact for corporate real estate. David leads a partnership with Deloitte on their technology Fast 50 program, advising many of Canada's fastest growing technology companies on their real estate requirements. Companies within the tech ecosystem are further supported by CBRE Forward, a platform co-founded by David Cairns. Forward showcases the fastest growing tech companies in Canada. Pioneering this client-first approach to commercial real estate enables David to be uniquely positioned to contribute to the growth of one of the most promising sectors of Canadian economy. So, I think you're all really going to enjoy this different and extremely fascinating story. David and I first met after he sent me a very kind message on LinkedIn, and I've really enjoyed the friendship we've been able to build a short time since then. Thank you, David. One important thing to message is David is also a very devoted family man and a father. I appreciate him for joining me and thank Mr. Cairns for leveraging the power of social media to make this possible in the first place. So without further ado, it's episode three of the Fans First podcast with David Cairns. Enjoy. David, thank you for coming on the Fans First podcast today. This is my first morning podcast ever, uh, so we'll see how well my train of thought leads me into the questions that I've prepared for you, but thank you for coming on, man. Excited to have you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Mornings are easy for me because I'm a dad of a 14-month-old baby. Yes. And I'm trying to get up earlier than when she gets up, so. Is, is that tricky? Uh, yeah, it can be. Um, you have to try to get your life into a routine where you're waking up at like five in the morning if you want to have time to yourself. Hmm. Hmm. Often heard that that's a good habit regardless of whether or not you have a child. So maybe something, something that I've tried to get into a couple of times, but uh, no doubt it can be difficult from what I've heard to, to get up before a child. And I mean, I know that I'm more on the child side, certainly <laughs> than I do on the dad side, but I, I woke up my parents a ton growing up. Uh, 
But yes, I mean, David, he's a father. Uh, he's certainly well-known in a couple of industries, one that you may not know much about if you're listening to this, and, and that's poker, mm-hmm. uh, where he first kind of started his career. And he's now, you recently just accepted a promotion, I believe, uh, to a senior vice president of office leasing role for CBRE Canada. Yeah, that's And right. formerly the VP. Yes, that's accurate. Very cool. Yeah. Well, congrats on the promotion, man. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Did that bring a, a little like level up in commission or uh, so, compensation? Or is it more so like seniority and the, the team side of things? It's a great question. And our industry is probably a little bit atypical in the sense that there's nothing qualitative about promotions. It has everything to do with your revenue accumulation over mm. your best five out of six years. Um, so it's really like I've actually always enjoyed pursuits that weren't qualitative because I've always found that when something's qualitative, I never get fucking recognized for it. <laughs> fair, fair, <laughs> fair. Well, you're going to get recognized for what you do there, but we're going to try and start off a little bit more chronologically. And typically what I ask people you know, relatively early on in this podcast is how and when did your time as a fan begin? Okay, great question. Um, I started to become pretty captivated as a fan with uh, ski racing, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I was a, a kid, I, I competed at uh, ski racing probably up to about 17 years old. Um, I competed to a reasonably high level, although when you get to about 15, 16, it's a fairly open field in the sense that you can be like 15 or 16 years old competing with people that are into their mid-20s. Oh, wow. So it can be like really, really debilitatingly difficult to actually rise up from there and and usually most people when they get that to that level of ski racing end up leaving the game roughly around the time that they leave high school so uh, in any event I became really captivated by individual competition through that sport that I was pursuing Um, and it actually led me to my interest in poker believe it or not yeah yeah actually you were recently interviewed um, by another podcaster. I think his name is Daniel Lee um, of OMD Ventures, and he kind of explained some of the intangibles of many career paths. Um, this is an interesting podcast, and you kind of talked a little bit about how your time as a skier um, and a few other things really led you to that like black and white sort of winning, uh, the, the interest in that sort of winning and the, and the purity that comes mm-hmm. along with like being the best at, mm-hmm. at a given time or in a given tournament or in a mm-hmm. given competition, whatever that may be. Yeah. Can you speak a bit more to that? Like as opposed to maybe team sports that I'd say probably the bulk of listeners uh, would mm-hmm. be playing growing up or even now. Yeah, sure. So I won't go into the details around my personal life for this podcast around why I became captivated by this black and white form of competition. But I will say that what I really liked about it is, is exactly what you mentioned, the sort of purity of it. And, and in the context of poker, what I really liked is that you knew that people were actually out there trying to lie to you. And there was something that was just so honest about that. And, and with some of the ambiguity that I had in other areas of my life, that sort of pursuit of winning, which kind of made me feel good you know what i mean like if, if if bad things were happening over here and you could kind of create this finite moment of like winning that in itself felt really good and then in the context of poker this honesty in dishonesty was something that just made me feel safe actually 
And that wasn't really part of my skiing career because there's not this honest, this dishonesty going on there. But I did get the benefit of that, you know, finite moment of winning where when, you know, on a given day or a given week or a given month or whatever, you know, even if people are better than you, you can actually perform better than them in, uh, in a given moment. And I, and I really like that about individual competition that, uh, you know, there are people that you might be outclassed by, but, you know, at the right time, you can be better than them. Yeah, definitely no dishonesty when you're getting timed going down a hill, but uh, mm-hmm. I can totally, I've, I've been playing a little bit of poker over the course of my later teen years and uh, a little bit of online stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, even just when you're in person with friends, it's the name of the game is trying to essentially get good at lying or fibbing. I mean, however you want to put it. Yeah. Um, Not to it, interrupt you, but there, something no, interesting ahead. on that note, uh, two professional poker players yesterday. So right now, as we sit here today, Day three of the main event of the World Series of Poker is about to kick off. What? Yeah, so I, I always get a lot of FOMO at this time of year. Dude, and I, you're, I gonna, you're about to get a lot more FOMO. Okay. You know why? Why? This is like, a, I was going to say this earlier, I, I forgot to, but it's one of the perfect days to be recording this podcast because I just came back into town from Ottawa, and I'm actually leaving to Vegas tomorrow. Whoa. Mainly for NBA Summer League, but is that where it happens? You should totally check it out. You oh, should, I'm going to. You should to. head over to the Rio All Suite Hotel and Casino. Okay. And just, just go check out some of the energy. You'll be there at a pretty interesting time. Uh, the money bubble will have burst today, so everyone that's left in the field by the time you arrive will have been making, will be making money, and uh, it starts to really kick off. But no, I didn't want to interrupt you, but what I wanted to mention was how pure this game really is. You're talking about you know the dishonesty that you expected from your own friends. Well, two professional poker players who are in a relationship together ended up at the same table, I believe, on day two of the main event, Igor Kurganov and Liv Bori, and Igor eliminated his own girlfriend from the main event of the World Series of Poker. Did, like, were you watching that, or did you catch a clip no, afterward? Like, I just what was caught the emotion a, like? Yeah, I kind of caught a clip. I mean, uh, I don't know the two of them. They do. They compete at a very, very high level. Okay. Um, but I mean, it made me think of my own relationship with my wife, and I just thought to myself, if, I, if me and her were at the same table, I'd be trying to eliminate her if, if the opportunity <laughs> came up. I mean, I wouldn't be maybe necessarily going on my way. I certainly wouldn't be colluding with her. But, you know, the game is just so pure, like you can't avoid just trying to make the right decisions, even if they are at the expense of a loved one. That's how crazy the game is. Okay. I think we've already gotten to like a pretty cool point in this podcast, but like I'm going to scale, try and scale back a little bit here to give the listeners more context around how you know so much about poker Mm -hmm. and how big a role it played in your life and Mm -hmm. how it still plays a pretty significant role in your life as a leader in business. Mm -hmm. Um, so you, you were going to school. I mean, I maybe mean, even take it back a little bit further. I know you said you don't want to go too deep into maybe happy to the if you personal want to. side. Happy well, to I think it has a lot to do, especially after listening to the one interview that you did recently, a lot to do with kind of how you push yourself into that arena. And I, thinking, I think as it speaks to you as a fan, especially growing up, you were certainly like a fan of maybe those individual sports and like those individual competitions, mm-hmm. even as uh, on a broader state. But you also were very competitive by nature. And, and I think you were also a fan, it seemed, of business on entrepreneurship at a pretty young age as a result of growing up in mm-hmm. a home where you know you were raised by your dad, yep. uh, a single parent. Yep. And he, you know, at a certain point when you and your brother got to an age, 
was able to kind of hone back in on his career because he had probably put so much time back in yeah. to you guys. Very accurate way of okay. des- describing it. Um, so yeah, that definitely sort of was, I think, a springboard for me. As um, you're, you're talking to me, one of the things I think I omitted from that uh, uh, podcast I did a, a few weeks ago was my dad actually was also a top individual competition sports person. So he, mm. he actually was the number one water skier in all of Canada between the ages of like 15 to 18. And he almost became a professional water skier. Like he, he's won a stupid number of, of competitions in water skiing. And same with his sister. So wow, we really actually have all kind of grown up on this, this individual competition side of sport. Um, so I think that that's sort of, that lens has, has um, fostered the competitive side of me. Although lately I'm trying to think of competition more from the context of like worthy rivalries as opposed to that word competition, which I know in the context of what you're describing today has no negative connotation to it at all. But I've had to actually change the way that I define it because I've noticed as I've kind of grown up that that way of defining competition for me has actually led to some negative ripple effects in my life. Hmm. But anyway, to kind of go back to... Um, you know what you're referencing yeah no I, I had that dad who had that sort of competitive side to him and that found its way into his business career for sure too and then uh, yeah as, as I got older I ended up spending a lot more time um, with some of my dad's friends you know a lot of whom were really senior people in the real estate industry um, and I think that that just taught me a lot about the mindset that was necessary for success uh, ways to interact with people, you know, to build rapport really quickly, you know, sort of sales skills, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then kind of pairing that sort of interpersonal side of, of business and competition from that lens with my ski racing career. Um, I think those two things together actually are kind of where the melting pot maybe for poker becoming such an interesting game to me because they actually involve the skill sets of both, right? Like skiing, you're not talking to somebody while you're going down a hill. Whereas poker, a competitive game or, you know, competitive sport in some people's minds, I consider it a sport. I just don't define sport maybe in the way that um, some might in terms of the athletic side of things. Um, But that interconnection of, of communication and pattern recognition and then also the sort of gamesmanship side of things that you'd find in sport, uh, I think those two things together uh, are what made me so captivated by the game. That's fascinating. I And to that point, you know, you growing up uh, with a younger brother as well, mm-hmm. you mentioned in that podcast that you were a bit of a guardian. And I think between that, maybe having such a competitive competitive attitude uh, from a young age and even at one point i think you referenced referenced yourself as a bully yeah um uh, not proud of that but uh, no it's no. part of my story yeah yeah which is not not a bad thing and you know to recognize it and there was kind of a defining moment when a student really stood up to you and that kind of mm-hmm. forced you to change your ways but i think like a lot culminated and and i'm not saying this in any sort of negative way but to almost it almost turned you into a bit of an outcast at a relatively young age where maybe partly because of the way the other people viewed you or understood you and just having a lack of maybe context around that combined with the way you grew up and how you were so independent from a young age 
did that kind of also lead towards poker in some respects? Because I, I could just be stereotyping this in some way, but I have watched poker and you know I've kind of been intrigued with the industry as a whole, um, as well from a slightly younger age. My nanny always grew up playing cards mm-hmm. with me, so like when I finally got to that point and it was like more money that you could start to bet with whatever be your father or online, mm-hmm. it, it fascinated me. But I do think that a lot of like the tops in that industry, they, they always seem like slight outcasts. So. I love to use the word misfit Misfit, to describe people in poker um, or really anybody that's just sort of doing something differently at a really high level. So I would agree with you that that poker certainly brings about a cast of different types of misfits. Um, The reason I like the word misfit better than outcast is like misfit to me has this sort of like intellectual side to it it has this you know maybe absolutely uh, like a high level of ability in in one way or another at least that's the way that i perceive it in in my own mind um so so yeah i've definitely found myself to be a bit of a misfit in my life i still do actually in business today and um when i was younger i maybe saw that more in a um a way that was like kind of pushing me away from society. Yeah. And now I've actually found a way to bring it to be, you know, a huge asset and a way for me to actually connect deeper to people. But at the time that I was younger, you know, I looked at these sort of these these activities and maybe poker being one of them that, you know, you could even, you know, you think of it more like an outcast. I liked actually that, you know, at that age and, and with what I was going through in my life and the way I was trying to define my personality, who I was, that I was associated to something where people would consider me to be a bit of an outcast. Yeah, I, there's nothing wrong with being an outcast, by the way, and, mm-hmm. and, and you're absolutely right. I think it speaks to how well you understand psychology, mm-hmm. which is also a pretty major part of poker mm-hmm. um, and, and what you do now. Mm-hmm. So kudos to you because, yeah, Misfit definitely, I would think, is perceived as a little bit more of an intellectual or less negative connotation associated with that mm-hmm. so so we'll go with misfits but i just have to use these words actually literally because of my competitive nature <laughs> if, if i don't define things in my mind in a way that's um abundant or connecting or expensive yeah. or you know inclusive then i find that i can get into a really negative headspace it's not that your words are actually the wrong words it's just i have to define things in my own way yeah yeah very yeah. psyche yeah. yeah it's interesting and, and so we'll talk a little bit about how you got into poker because you were going to McGill. You, you grew up in Toronto, obviously. You then went to McGill. And that, that was that straight out of high school? Yeah, right out of high school, yeah. So it took social sciences there? Political uh-huh. science. Political science. Well, I often make the joke that really I took a degree in poker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and because that's really when you took the lead getting more interested in it. Mm-hmm. And it started with maybe just you know some games with friends that you were meeting. Yeah. And then that pushed you into the online world? Actually, the games with friends were happening in, in high school. Okay. Um, partly because I couldn't create an account with a legal... Yeah. Like, I couldn't legally create an online account. You know, some kids had their own parents' accounts that, you know, you'd have to have an arrangement with your parent if that's what you were going to do. <laughs> that's crazy. Because, your friends had parents that gave them credit cards to start a poker account? Well, you could actually, like, create one and use a credit card uh, without any parental consent but the problem became if you wanted to withdraw the money get your money back you needed to have a parent that was willing to actually give you the money uh so my dad didn't do that for me and kudos to him for that but um as i got to be 18 in university 
And I had no one monitoring my decision-making or tracking my movements. That's when I started to pivot to online poker. And that, that kind of also dovetailed into um, a lot of my friends that I was in high school with just didn't have that drive for the game that I had. And I, and I think that was really twofold. Like a lot of people just didn't really have the the interest in competitive uh, individual competition and also just didn't really give a shit about poker where I just really had a drive for both and that just kind of led me down the path of pursuing online while I was in university. Hmm. And there's some pretty interesting stats to throw out there. I, I'll try and make it so that you actually are able to tell people about the stories for each one of these. But while you were at McGill, um, it wasn't like... You know, it was all flowers and sunshine when you were playing poker. And as you started to really find your rhythm or, or the tactics and the strategies and all the different things that fed into becoming more of a consistent player, mm-hmm. an individual competitor in that space. But it definitely was a lot of ebbs and flows or peaks and valleys. Mm-hmm. Can you speak a bit more to that? And like when you finally hit a big break at one point? Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I definitely falling in line with my maybe misfit ways, I didn't go about poker in a very methodical fashion. And as a more mature person sitting here today, I definitely would have approached the game differently than I did. But, you know, I always sort of refer back to like, if you're happy with who you are right now, then everything that you did leading up to who you are today that you're happy with was a good decision. But for me, I was sort of taking the approach of depositing with whatever resources I had available to me. So if I had $50, I was putting that $50 into playing poker. You know, I luckily had my food and my living covered. But aside from that, every dollar I had was going into the game. And I was always trying to play at the highest stakes that I possibly could. So a lot of times I'd just go broke and then I'd have to find the time to pull together another $50. And then in some cases, I would take that $50 and enter a tournament, maybe win a few grand or whatever. And then I'd play with that few grand and I'd lose the money and it became this like sort of up and down roller coaster over the course of roughly two years. Uh, the reason I say I would do things differently going backwards is that I actually stopped myself from being able to play the game as a result, right? Yeah. I'd go broke and then I couldn't find a way to play the game until I had more resources available to me. Whereas most people are more methodical, they play incrementally with a much smaller, you know, like they, if they'd deposit $50 and they'd play in $1 games. Yeah, yeah. I was never captivated by that. I always just wanted to play at the highest level that I could. Um, So as a result, like I said, I just kind of went broke many, many times over the course of two years. And then uh, one day I was supposed to be studying for a marketing exam. And I uh, ended up winning a tournament that had around eight or 900 players in it for, I think it was something like 12 grand US at the time. So I literally, you know, at that time would have had like 50 bucks in my CIBC debit account or whatever, right? Uh, And then I all of a sudden had the equivalent of probably close to 20 grand Canadian because the US dollar at the time was quite strong. I then spent the next whole day getting out of that exam, something (laughs) that I was pretty good at doing when I I had to. I won't go into the details of how I did that, uh, but in any way, I got out of that exam. And then the next day after that, I played poker all day and I ended up winning, um, I remember the tournament, $300 six max which six max is referred to the number of players that are at the table. Mm-hmm. So a lot of time you're playing with nine people at the table. Uh, in the case of the six max format, there's only six, and it's a much more aggressive format because with less players at the table, you have to open up the starting hands that you play. 
just by virtue of the blinds coming around more often and the expectation is people are going to try and steal those with more regularity with less people at the table. So anyway, I won that event for about 25 grand US and then all of a sudden I had close to 60 grand in my bank account at, uh, you know, I was 20 years old. 20. Yeah. Wow. And I remember calling my dad because I had this like burning desire to show him that I knew what I was doing. And so, but I didn't want him to know how much money I had. So I actually lied to him. I told him that I won $20,000, but that I had won two tournaments, you know, one with about 800 players in it and one with about 350 players in it. And what was his reaction? His, it was the first time that he had a bit of a different perspective on the game. He thought, okay, well, there must be some skill element to this. Like, sure, it's, you probably got lucky to win two tournaments. You don't just do that all the time. But I think it was like, okay, there can't. it's not like playing blackjack, you know what I mean, to be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you, it was a bit to, of a turning point. To win that kind of money in blackjack, you'd need some pretty significant money to start yeah, exactly. <laughs> and get on a bit of a roll. But yeah. that's that's a lot of money, especially for a kid who's kind of getting through school. What, you were in third year at that point? Yeah. And the story kind of goes from there. Maybe I should kind of close out Finish my university kind of career. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, that was in my third year of university. And I, and I, and I fall back on, on talking about my dad here for a second again. Like He was an incredibly supportive parent. And he, he was really, really active when he had to be. And he also recognized there were times when it was maybe better to just kind of back off. But he almost alone got, got me through university just by having conversations with me, you know, some of them being hours and hours and hours at a time because, you know, I, I was distracted by poker or I was just disenchanted with school because it was just kind of my nature to be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, school didn't really align with you know, where you were going as was, a human being. Where I was going as a human being, although I'm incredibly grateful I did it because it, it showed me how to do to commit to something yeah. for a prolonged period of time that was challenging for me to do and it just paid massive dividends in my life. But, um, you know, yeah, I, I kind of finished up my third year and luckily by being three quarters of the way there, I had a, a little, you know, enough internal drive to kind of decide, okay, regardless of the fact that I have this money over here, I'm going to finish school, right? Smart. Yeah, so um, didn't really do a ton up and down in poker between the end of third year and my final semester of university. You know, I was playing obviously, but I didn't have any monumental win or loss. I was kind of just like hovering around, making a little bit of money, not playing an incredible amount. I think I almost took my pedal off the took the pedal off a little bit after that because the amount of money that I had felt like quite significant. And I think something I've really had that, that I've done well at most times in my poker journey was when I felt like I was out, when I felt like I didn't know how to handle, you know, either a situation or the amount of money that I had in front of me, I usually stepped off the pedal. And I think I did that in between then and my fourth year. Um, so in my fourth year, though, I was, um, I'll never forget this. I was actually, I just gotten a really bad exam result back. I was feeling quite down. Um, and I, I went to dinner with a friend of mine and we went and had like Thai food or something. And I was talking to my dad on the phone at about 7.30, 8 o'clock at night about how disappointed I was with, with how I was doing in school. And he, he just kind of like gave me some uplifting sort of dad messages. And what I had forgotten is that about a week prior, I'd made an agreement with one of my friends, a guy from France that I had met at university, that we were going to play what was referred to as the Full Tilt Online Poker Series, F-Tops is what it was called. Mm. And um, they did this about four times a year, and they, they generated these massive prize pools for tournaments that were played online. 
And so we had agreed that we would play that night, each on our respective poker accounts. So each, you know, using our own computer with our own sort of online, you know, whatever. You, the username or whatever Username or whatever, or our own identities, <laughs> online identities. <laughs> the poker identity. Yeah. Um, and we just kind of said, okay, well, we each play the same tournaments and we'll share in our money. So whoever, whatever anybody wins, we'll just chop it up 50-50. You know, we'll sit there and help each other make decisions, you know, which sort of was a bit of a gray area. But a lot of people were doing that. So, you know, you'd help, you'd just play with your friends, play alongside them. And uh, on my account that night, we ended up winning a tournament that was a $200 buy-in with over 8,000 players in it wow. for, I think that it was 216 or 17,000 US, which at the time was like 260K. So that was just very life-altering for me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like we, I, well, I split that money with a friend of mine. But I, you know, after that plus the other monies I had, I had roughly 200 grand at, at age still 20. That's insane. You're, you're like, you know what I mean? I'm like, I definitely don't know what you mean because I've never come close to seeing $200,000 in my bank account. Mm -hmm. And certainly in my poker days, I, I got close to winning a couple of tournaments, but mm -hmm. never even got that like illustrious win, whether it was in person or online. Um, so I've made more money in real estate than I did in poker, but I've still never seen 200 grand in my bank account because of expenses and buying houses and like anytime I had it, it was being funneled to another yeah, sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. So I've never sat with that kind of money in a bank account since that time. Take, just take me through that moment a little bit. Mm -hmm. So you said it was on your account. Mm -hmm. Obviously, mm -hmm. if you were playing, starting this tournament at night, it was probably... Seven, eight in the morning. Yeah. And yeah, it was around 8.30 in the morning, by the, so we played through the night. Wow. And so at, at what point did, was he out of the tournament? Were you two like FaceTiming or something? No, we were sitting in the same room because we, oh, okay. we went to school Oh, okay, still going to school together. there. Okay, yeah. okay. So we were literally in my apartment through the whole night together. Epic. Yeah, it was very epic. Um, Do you just like jump up and down? And I, I remember I remember very distinctly when we won the tournament that I like punched him in the chest like really <laughs> hard. Um, and he was so hopped up on adrenaline that, uh, yeah, I don't think he probably felt it. Um, but there's a funny story to that too. So my dad knew very little about poker, even though he had known I'd you know been doing all right at it. And it was around seven in the morning that we kind of got to the final table of nine people left in this tournament. And so I'm every click of the mouse at that point is worth tens of thousands of dollars, right? Wow, yeah. Like when you're in the beginning of the tournament, your decisions aren't worth that much dollars. But at the end, you know, the difference between first or ninth and first is, is about $200,000. And because it's a no limit format where you could literally lose all of your chips at any time, you really have to be very present of mind to make sure you don't fuck that up yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm in the middle of calling my dad teaching him how to download full tilt poker the software platform <laughs> and then find my table you know in so a sea watch. of different games that could be played cash games tournaments different stakes you know like it was quite like taxing to explain to him how to find it and he ended up watching me take it down from the office uh, at about yeah from 7 30 until like 9 o'clock in the morning what a cool moment for your dad to yeah. just be there for like your well your biggest poker moment up to that point and probably kind of what propelled you at that point. Yeah, he still refers to me as champ to this day. Nice. Yeah, it's a great nickname to pick up at the age of twenty. Like yeah, yeah. a lot of people might have that from when they're like five or something, mm -hmm. but you actually like deserved <laughs> that champ title yeah, after yeah. he witnessed you yeah. be the champion. Okay, so you're graduating university a, a short time later. Um, Certainly things are, like your life was in a good spot. You had money, 
you're clearly a fan of poker Mm -hmm. at this point. Like you have made it clear to your dad, to a couple of your close friends. Did you have a few close friends at university who were playing poker other than that one gentleman? Actually, no, no. Just uh, the speaks, one guy? speaks to the kind of the misfit nature of the game, right? Like, yeah. like usually, you, you know, it took me till I got into poker full time to actually meet all the other misfits. Yeah, you know that makes I mean? sense. And and then you're also a huge fan from more of the prime nature of how you grew up of individual competition still, mm-hmm. and that. To give listeners context, when he was speaking about some of the different ways you can play poker, particularly online, like and anywhere, you know, there's cash games, there's tournaments. So those are probably the two easiest ways to just split them up. It's like mm-hmm. you can just sit down, play, and leave with whatever cash you have left, or you buy in for a certain amount, and then you're only out of that tournament when you've lost your chips uh, that you get at the start. So. Much much bigger fan of going into the tournaments because that led you to that black and white sense of winning when you when you finally did win a few of those tournaments, and then now you have this money to potentially go and start playing poker at some really high stakes tournaments in person with your own bankroll. Mm-hmm. But did you do that right away, or did you instantly transition after meeting a few people around the space to getting this backer? So I did, yeah. So I did go and play on my own. And um, quickly realized how, how fast I could go broke. Um, so I, I, I went to Vegas, played the World Series, played a number of different events between $1,000 and $10,000 buy-ins. And quickly it was like, holy shit, I could go broke real fast. So I took some time off on traveling with a friend of mine. And right. then in that time, I found an investor. And I kind of said to myself as I was traveling, if I'm going to do this for real, I'll find a way to make it sustainable. And through, the, through a few minimal connections I had in the poker world, I found a guy from Vancouver who was backing four or five different players. He took me on and we, we fostered this backing arrangement. And for those that don't understand what a backer is, it's really like a venture capital investor, someone who fronts the money for the business opportunity. And in the, in the case of poker, the arrangement is fairly favorable to the person being invested in as opposed to, I would say, the investor. Um, in that they cover 100% of the buy-ins and the, the financial risk. And when there's profits to be shared, they share 50-50. And when you're losing money, you're in, ref- in what is referred to as makeup. So you can't start to get profit until you've paid back the makeup. So you know, let's say you, you have a month of losses of 10000 And then in one day you win 10000 you pay that back. And then you can start to get into the black and share in profits. The challenge with it is that usually people don't back players long enough to actualize the ROI of that player. Hmm. And, um, you know, they're human beings. So, you know, naturally when you get into big makeup with a backer, you become less motivated. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, no, it's fine. You become less motivated. You know, you question your game. You know, you're not a robot. So it can start to be sort of like this bad ripple effect of like bad play, chasing losses only having an interest in playing higher buy-in events versus maybe some of the things that are going to get you out of makeup, you know, so these are sort of some of the nuances of investing in a human being, just like, I guess, venture capital, but the team is not as broad and, you know, when you, when you involve gambling in the way that you are, it can really kind of get in your head. Well, yeah, I think it even just comes back to that point. It's a little bit more black and white than like if you were investing in a, you know, pre-product or pre-revenue startup, like similar to the position that we were once in. 
if everything else falls apart at some point, you've at least invested in these like five people maybe or so that you believe in. Um, and then you can take elsewhere as, as an angel or something like that. But mm -hmm. it's, it's really interesting. And I, I only learned this through you after meeting you um, about the sort of backing that goes on in the poker space. And it seems like it's quite prevalent, especially as a pro, pro, a pro poker player. Mm -hmm. um, so you played poker for how many years then as a pro? Because at that point, you're basically then just paying for your own food. And do they even like take on the travel costs? No, they don't. Some backers will take on travel. This guy didn't. Okay. Um, so, so you're using your like previous bankroll that was you know tied up in a savings account just yeah. to kind of fund you to the different tournaments that you were attending. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely. I was always paying for all that, and I luckily had a bankroll to cover some of that stuff. Yeah. Um, he also didn't want all of my actions, so things that were below a two hundred dollar buy-in online, he just decided he didn't want. Hmm. I thought that was a big mistake on his part because those are the lower variance forms of poker where there's going to be you know worse players and yeah. stuff that could just sort of supplement higher risk opportunities. But it was great for me that he didn't want it because it allowed for me to actually make a side income from, from those games. So I played that stuff on my own and that definitely supplemented my, my living. I was able to make probably, you know, I don't even know, I'd have to go back and look at my results, but probably like 40, 50 grand a year, maybe just off of playing stuff like that. Uh, so that was helpful. Um, it's no joke. I mean, that's a good income. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And then he had, so in order for him to take the risk buying me into these really high buy-in live tournaments around the world, which can get up to $10,000 or more in entry fees just for one event, uh, he wanted to mitigate that risk by taking my online actions. So like I said, he didn't take all of it, but he took any buy-ins that I was playing online from $200 and up. So um, I was always making quite a bit of money playing online poker for a couple reasons, um, mostly because the amount of volume that you can play online pales in comparison to the amount that you can play live. So you can actualize, like I said, your ROI a lot quicker. Yeah. You know, you play 20 games in a day, 100 games in a week, you know, thousands of games in a year. Whereas live, if you're playing this circuit like hardcore, you know, traveling the world and playing the World Series of Poker, you might play 100 events in a year, like one every three days. And it's even of, more taxing. Yeah. So, so like. A hundred games is such a small sample to be able to assess someone's ability or, or figure out what your ROI is. Yeah. And so the, the challenge with live poker is that it can take like a decade, you know, for some players to actually sort of see, see results. Um, I kind of knew that. And that's part of the reason I took a backer because I could have gone down a different path. Like I could have decided I'm going to play for myself online. And I'm going to take that forty, fifty thousand that I could make, you know, just playing in these lower buying games. Take all my online action, and I probably would have made a few hundred grand a year playing online. But I kind of like looked at my life, and I was just like, I know that poker is not going to be what I want to do when I'm thirty, when I'm forty. And it kind of went back. You know, I had a reasonable amount of self-awareness as a young person, and so I said, like, why don't I take on this backer so that I can have the opportunity to potentially make a million dollars a year in a year? You know, win a big tournament. Um, and, and that was the reason I chose to go down that path. It didn't happen for me as I expected it off, likely would not actually, because I, you know, you'd have to, I bet you if I played 10 years, maybe it would have happened, but I decided to get out of the game before that. But that whole experience, that whole journey, 
all the ups and downs of it, playing live poker at, at you know high buy-ins with some of the best players in the world sometimes taught me so much that is relevant to the life that I have now. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and we're gonna get into that just sh- like shortly. We'll transition more into your career now as it is in business and commercial real estate. Um, but there's a few things that you mentioned just then and some of the few things that I just wanted to touch on. A couple quick questions. So you mentioned 20 games in a day was possible, mm-hmm. which was, that means tournaments. Even more sometimes. On so Sunday, how, I might how have 15 many, to 20 going at a time. At a t- I was just about to ask, how many could you play at a time? You could play like up to 20 games and still be able to kind of follow what's going on on each Yeah, tab. so I found that eight was really the maximum that I could handle where I could play optimally yeah but I wasn't really of sound mind all the time and on Sundays you kind of told yourself this you you gave yourself the justification that if you were on autopilot you know a little bit more than normal you'd make up for it with the fact that there were so many more amateur players playing that day and you'd be giving yourself more shots Mm. so I, I think there's a bit of a balance to that I think I kind of went swung the pendulum too far usually in those situations and I was probably playing 15 to 20 games at once well like the game itself though it's kind of a risk assessment and yeah. and you're just looking at it with the opportunity cost of maybe not doing that so yeah but it, as I re- in retrospect probably w- if I were to do it today and I was playing professionally I probably would never get above eight at once yeah okay well that's good to know because it's for anybody who is I mean happening to listen to this and has thought about getting into the world of poker a little bit more seriously that, that can maybe give you an indication is can you only follow one or two games or could you actually potentially follow eight to ten tournaments at one time mm-hmm. and then give them a little insight around the lifestyle and just like as a professional even in the school days like how much time typically were you spending online or just mm-hmm. playing poker yeah so once i got into it with a backer which gave me like free reign right like yeah. I, I could play whenever i wanted that was this, guy, this guy had infinite pockets to give me money um maybe i should give like i got into being backed at a time when we were at the peak of the online poker boom so chris moneymaker this guy won the world series of poker in 2003 he was a complete amateur he qualified online for a 30 dollars satellite and then he won the main event for 2.5 million total amateur with the name moneymaker it just created this boom in poker right and my backer was kind of playing the game at that time at a fairly high level and after that ushered in all these like amateur players and it just kind of like got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger like i think the main event the year that he won it was like 800 people then the year after it was 2500 people then the year after that was like 5500 people so you can kind of see how quickly they exponential they, it was exponential right so he ended up becoming a multi multi-millionaire in that era because his skill edge was just so massive in comparison to the average person and I started to get into poker at the time when it was kind of peaking, and he had all this money available to, you know, just throw it at poker investment. Um, so the, I, I'm forgetting what your initial question was, but I wanted to give that context. Just how to, much, and then how many hours? Yeah. Yeah. You so were yeah. Out. So I gave that context to sort of say like why this. I had this guy who was just had like infinitely deep pockets yeah, to just yeah. give me money. So with that, I was you know, playing anytime I wanted at any stakes. And, and I was probably playing, you know, anywhere from 30 to 60 hours a week, depending on how motivated I was. But on an average week in the beginning, I was so enthralled with the game that I was really playing like probably 50, 60 hours a week. Incredible. I mean, very much like the life of an entrepreneur. And you touched on the similarities between the two. Uh, 
It's crazy. So this guy was a poker player, obviously, at some point in time. Oh, he still was. Like, he, he maintained being a poker player. Did you have KPIs then that you were, like, you know, giving to him every month? Was he keeping, like, a, any really. sort of close eye on you? Not really. So I'd say backing has become a lot more methodical in the world that we live in today because the poker, average poker player has gotten so much better. And it's just harder to make money at the game. Um, he was making a stupid amount of money, like, hand over fist uh, at that time. And he just was, you know, not every backer was like this. He was just pretty hands-off. He just didn't want to get involved in coaching people. He kind of thought, like, okay, I'm going to pick the people I want to invest in, and I'm yeah. investing in them because I not think incubating. they can do it. Yeah, he just wasn't incubating me at all, which in retrospect was probably a mistake for him, and it was a shame for me. And I, I, I probably would have sought him out more um, with the confidence that I have in myself today. But uh, he just wasn't really that interested in it. Um, which may be... You mentioned today you could have sought him out a little bit more, but that might have matched your lifestyle or just kind of the person you were back then, yeah. uh, being able to treat that lifestyle a little bit more independently. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you were asking about the lifestyle, right? So oh, yeah. the lifestyle was definitely one that as time went on started to really weigh on me. Physically, you know, because of playing 50, 60 hours a week and not being in tune with myself, like I, I got really out of shape. Like, again, if I was like, thinking of who I am today, I, I would have eaten a lot You're healthier. You know, I, <laughs> I would have eaten a lot healthier. I would have uh, exercised more. I would have known how much that would have benefited my state of mind, right? But back then, I just felt like I was an invincible person. And I just really carried some bad habits from university into playing poker full time. And so that started to take its toll on me, you know, and then, you know, when you're playing online, it's, it's a very isolated, solitary pursuit, right? And for the age that I was at, it was very counter to like what all of my friends were doing. You know, they were all starting careers and whatever, consulting, banking, legal, whatever. you know, I was, I went to school at McGill. I had some really smart friends. They're all mm -hmm. doing great things, but they were working more nine to five and spending time with each other in evenings and weekends. And my whole schedule was geared around evenings and weekends. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have a lot of normalcy to my life, right? And at the beginning, I was so enchanted by the game and I loved it so much and I was really like into it that none of that mattered. But as all of these things started to weigh on me a little bit more year over year over year, you know, after like the third year doing it, I just like was ready to kind of start to move on from it because it was just a really unhealthy lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. But there are a lot of positive takeaways. For and, sure. And we're going to get to that shortly. One, The last thing I really wanted to touch on as it relates to poker solely is you mentioned the boom that you were a part of, mm -hmm. more or less. Like That's really what kind of propelled you to get more and more involved with poker, mm -hmm. um, have that backer and a number of things. Chris Moneymaker kind of being the start of that. What role did social media play in poker at that time? And if you still follow it, like what mm -hmm. role does it play now? So I definitely follow it today. I'm totally a fan yeah. still today. Yeah. Um, so social media did not play a very big role in poker at the time. Twitter was probably really the only thing that was that present. Sense. Kind of newsworthy. Yeah. yeah. And there, there'd be a lot of like um, rivalries between players through the Twitter platform. Um, and you know you had online forums but I wouldn't really call that social media because it was closed yeah. in its nature right those were like the dark holes of the internet yeah. yeah exactly but Twitter was really the only thing and then um, as I got into my career and I'm like looking for some downtime you know like 
just hanging out on an evening or a weekend, all of a sudden I start to see these YouTube highlight reels of, mm. of people playing online poker. And I'm like, what is this? And I see that they've got their face on the screen in the top left corner and then they've, they've, they're they moving back and forth toggling between the games that they're playing providing insight into what that they're doing wow and I'm like hmm this is cool and I thought like oh is this just like a YouTube thing then I peel back the engine further and I learn about this platform Twitch and I had no idea what Twitch was until I started watching these YouTube highlight reels and I'm like oh my god these guys are live streaming their poker the whole day and they're and, and some of the top players in, in on these Twitch platforms are getting like 10, 15, 20,000 people watching them play poker. And I was just like, I was like, wow, this is incredible. And I wish that that was a thing when when I was playing because I totally would have done it. And so talking about social media, what's happened in the last like maybe three or four years in poker is it's created the ability for people to, to generate personal brands and in turn generate sponsorship opportunities you know, like there are players now that stream on Twitch, they get paid by poker stars like, you know, 150 grand a year to be a sponsored pro. No doubt. Yeah. It's gr- like the greatest type of advertising. I mean, each of those people who are watching, they're obviously captivated enough mm-hmm. in what that person's doing that there's a pretty strong sentiment associated with the fact that they're probably going to move on to try themselves. Yeah. So, wow, that's super interesting. And I'm glad you brought up the point of like personal branding and stuff because that's really the point to me is like, in a place where you touched on the lifestyle being relatively, well, it's, it's not conducive to a, a long-term career. You, Can be you, for a very small few, kind of like equivalent to like, you know, top golfers. Right, right. You know, some have that ability to sustain it long-term, but like we're or, talking about like micro, an MMA micro, or micro amount. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so why not take the recognition you can earn in a short period of time advantage of the platforms and the channels that we have to kind of communicate these types of things right now and build that personal brand at the same time and you know the education piece being a component of that on youtube and twitch as well like it's it's so smart and i actually hadn't gone there in my own head yeah and if anyone is listening to this that's like you know really interested in poker and thinking about pursuing it full-time the advice i would give you is definitely leverage that and make sure that you really like take ownership of that personal brand and make sure that you present it in the right light like presented in a very professional light. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because like if you do that, first of all, more poker opportunities will come your way. But if you're deciding to transition out of the game like I did, it's going to benefit you so greatly to go and take that next opportunity. But if you take it like in a jokey way or, or whatever, I'm not saying like be true to who you are, but like take it seriously because it's a legacy that you're building for yourself and it's going to have a ripple effect on the rest of your life as in business, whatever that might be. Yeah, legacy is a good word for it. And it's like you're building your portfolio, you know what I mean? Like you can show people those types of things. So quickly, I'm gonna roll over a couple of stats here just because you know I want people to understand how really interesting you are. It's fascinating to talk to you and we can go on for hours and hours, but mm-hmm. I'm gonna transition this more so to the business side quickly. But you generated $2.5 million in revenue with a 30% return on investment over a three year period. Mm-hmm. that's a crazy number you were for a period of time a top 100 player online mm-hmm. with a community across platforms that must have been far tens over tens and tens of thousands yeah, yeah. probably even maybe hundreds more. of thousands I don't even know I mean people that were maybe even other yeah relatively serious level talking thousands yeah but yeah yeah true and um, and yeah and then the, the point that I really loved that you touched on throughout that just briefly 
was you really had this self-awareness as a younger individual, even while you were getting into poker, to know that it wasn't going to be something you wanted to do into your 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, as you were kind of in your mid-20s when you got into it. And well, early 20s when you got into it in college, but as a pro, kind of the Mm mid-20s. And there's this quote that you had in the prior podcast that you just recorded call and said even if i was successful even if i was financially successful i like how you brought that up i'd probably i probably wouldn't be happy i knew i'd have to sit at the table and earn every dollar like the last one yeah that spoke like volumes to me and i think to have that recognition at a young age is incredibly impressive and so you said like you know you would instead love to make money through more of a value exchange between a team of other people and a way that you can kind of offer them, you know, whether it be leadership insights, um, a guide to becoming more successful in their yeah. own rights and working together ultimately, like that was something that you knew was kind of in the cards for you, or at least you wanted to make the transition into. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying all that. Um, and it's interesting to hear played back to me. And I think the value exchange part, I don't think I, had the outward awareness of at the time, like I wasn't thinking that when I was 22, 23, 24, but I'm realizing I had the underlying mindset because that's what I've created for myself today. Um, And, you know, I remember when I started in the industry that I'm in, I was extremely competitive and I looked at like winning at someone else's loss expense. Like I, I really wanted to be like number one, almost at the expense of other people. And as I have grown and matured, I've realized that the path to being quote number one, first of all, really has like, there's no, at the top of the mountain of like money, there's fucking nothing on the other side. You know what I mean? But at the top of becoming number one in terms of like being a leader and, 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 you know, value exchange between clients and your teams and like seeing how like being in an abundant mindset and, and all that, where that can lead you in your life in terms of fulfillment and what you get back from that and the legacy that you build. Like that to me is the way that that I now look at winning, um, and it, it really it all came from the journey of poker, and then taking you know a mindset that was shifting for me as I left, that was trying to get away from maybe the competitive state that I was living in in the poker world, and some of the negativity that was surrounding my life at the time, to now transitioning to the way that I think now and the way I just described. Um, all of those those experiences and those decisions and uh, the world that I lived in before I got into business were hugely important to getting to this place that I'm at now. Yeah, and you, you mentioned winning there. I think that's kind of the word you use, but it's mm-hmm. also just like that word of success. Mm-hmm. And I think how so many people associate it with finance, it's just important to note that, like you said earlier, There's like nothing on the top, no, nothing no, on the other side, nothing of on the other side of that mountain. And to be truly successful, you had to be happy. Mm-hmm. And you knew that that was not going to breed you into some sort of life where you were going to see an overwhelming amount of happiness. No, all I had to do was look around, right? Like I I was socially isolated. All the people that I cared about were doing things at different times than I was. You know, the, the swings up and down from the game were just hard to handle. And I couldn't imagine, you know, and then into the point of the quote you made earlier, I couldn't be exponential in, in my, you know, talking about money for a second, I couldn't be exponential in my money-making opportunity. I couldn't build a business that had an exponential growth potential. I couldn't leverage the abilities of other people. I had to, I had to use my skills 
to sort of chug away at every dollar that I was trying to make. And mm -hmm. I didn't want to be 50 years old sitting at the table. The, on, the only way that I could get more money was playing higher stakes. And with higher stakes comes higher risk. You know, I just, the, the equation didn't line up. It was not dangerous exponential. Scenario. It was, uh, yeah, it's dangerous, but it wasn't exponential. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I totally get you. Um, hopefully people at home understand that one as well, but I think you make it really clear. So there was definitely a little bit of a transition period. Um, you kind of tested out a career at Career Builder. Yeah. I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Like a, just like a six month period of time. Found that wasn't for you. Ended up going back down to Vegas to mm -hmm. entering another World Series of Poker event. How many of those did you play in in your lifetime? Uh, I'm not sure the number. Probably maybe 40, 50. I can't remember. Wow. Very cool. But I do remember that particular time I'd started dating my now wife. Oh, wow. And I wasn't being fully honest with her. I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to go down to Vegas for like a week. And like, I didn't want to let her know that like my intentions were to go down there for like poker. three weeks. No, she knew I was going for poker. Oh. But I didn't want to like, I didn't want to tell her how long. And so <laughs> like one day my roommate was like, hey, like, aren't you going to be gone for like three weeks? And she's like, three weeks. And I'm like, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, <laughs> yeah. There was a transition for sure. The bumps in an early relationship. Yeah, um, we're married now. Hap happily married. Happily married with, with one child, right? With one child. Yeah, yeah. Congrats mm -hmm. on that one. Thanks. Um, so CBRE, where you now work, mm -hmm. you started there in, in a relatively like entry level fashion. Very entry level. I was I was effectively an administrative assistant to people that do what I do now. Um, it was the best experience I could have ever had. Uh, I actually needed it. Like I, I needed a period of time to like transition from this world of poker into you know, which was again like solitary, bit misfit on the outs outskirts of society, yeah, yeah. and try to figure out now how to integrate myself into a completely new world. So, being able to like not get thrown into the deep end of the pool and you know sell like in the way that I do today, not knowing anything about the real estate market, or just how to be a human in a corporate <laughs> setting. Uh, that that year was so so pivotal for me, but it it definitely had me checking my ego at the door. You know, like I was making thirty seven thousand dollars that year, and my swings. You know, on a Sunday, just a Sunday of normal poker, my buy-ins would be between eight to twelve thousand dollars U.S. So I had to I had to make eight to twelve grand just to break even on a Sunday, one day out of the week out of the year, right? So it was it was definitely a bit of an ego at the door kind of experience for me. Um, but it was, it was, like I said, just so monumentally important to, to kind of making that continuing along that transitional period towards where I felt like, you know, okay, I'm ready to take on this new chapter of my life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and kudos to you for having the wherewithal to understand you, you needed to take a step backwards and, and really like figure out how to fit in, in that ecosystem of like corporate and, you know, the overwhelming overlaps in society that happen when you work for like an extremely large organization mm -hmm. like that at CBRE. So for those who are listening and don't, don't know about CBRE, mm -hmm. they are the largest commercial real estate services firm in the world. And they're publicly traded under their name, CBRE. Mm -hmm. um, you do stuff like office, industrial, retail, hotels, like mm -hmm. anything. Yeah. yeah, we service on the transaction side of that. So we would help we would help investors buy or sell real estate or we would help owners lease the real estate that they owned or in, in the case of me a lot of what I do is I help companies as it's sort of what we would call a tenant representative uh, mm -hmm. with, with any of their transactional real estate requirements 
And, and I kind of also act as a conduit towards the broader Seabury platform. So sometimes companies need help with strategizing on what their future workplace is going to look like. And you might want to do that before you actually get out and look at space or consider renewing your lease or things of that nature. And then other times they might need help with project management and construction and you know getting a space ready. So, so because I'm very live and in the deal with companies, I can advise them on whether they should maybe slow down a bit and start to strategize or advise them on how they can get some help on the other side once the deal's done. Which is really going to earn you some long-term customers doing mm-hmm. that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. The honesty in terms of recognizing the need to slow down or increase um, the speed at which you're approaching that process. Mm-hmm. Explain quickly. I know you have a kind of an, a way that you explain exactly what you do, yeah. and I, I loved the way you did it on that last podcast. Mm-hmm. So just explain for like the companies that may be out there right now, like yeah. maybe they're just early, early stage mm-hmm. startup, but maybe they're also going through a bit of a scale up period right now, yeah. or maybe there's people who work for enterprise right now. Yeah, so I kind of just explained that I, I think I act as a conduit yeah. to a lot of different things that companies need. So for that reason, I like to describe what I do as, as helping scale ups all the way through to enterprise companies create and build dynamic office environments, right? So like, yeah, I'm helping on the transaction side, but I think that like, for me, it's about mindset too. Like I know I help people more than they probably know I help them. And in order for me to showcase what I do in in the most meaningful and positive way, I have to believe that I'm making a bigger impact than just helping someone with a real estate transaction, right? So just to reiterate, it's to help scale-ups all the way through to enterprises, create, foster, and build dynamic office environments. Yeah, that's a. I love the way you put that. And, you know, the future of work, which you're heavily tied up in, where, where, where you work, and even with your other roles, it pertains to a company or more or less a platform that you mm-hmm. co-founded called mm-hmm. CVRE Forward. Mm-hmm. And... That could be a conversation that we really could have all day. And yeah. I was just pondering this thought in my head just now of maybe my friend Tim, who's the global evangelist for WeWork, uh, when he's in town at some point in time, maybe we should do like a future of work episode. So we'll see if we can strum that up down the line because I think you two would have some interesting takes and opinions to go off of. But we can like talk to a little bit of it now because you yourself talk about doing potentially close to 90% of your work on your mobile. Mm-hmm. And that could be seen in essence as a, a pretty strong indication that people are moving away from offices yeah. um, and, and more of a one work environment for mm-hmm. a lot of their employees. Mm-hmm. So why do you still think that you know a work environment and an office space is so critical uh, nowadays, given the fact that we're moving at such a mobile yeah, so I can maybe like, so I'll, I'll take myself here as an example and then I'll maybe create a broader context for what's going on in the office space, office space landscape today. Yeah. So I fundamentally believe that at least, it, you know, I don't know what, I don't want to give a percentage, but I think a huge component of the way you need to operate has to be like live and in color with people. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like I can work remotely on so much of what I do, but if I was just remote working at home with my wife and my daughter in my neighborhood, I'd have no connection to the teammates that you know make the engine of what we do keep chugging along. Yeah. We would be out of rapport. I wouldn't know what was going on in their personal lives. I wouldn't be able to provide them with any support, whether it was personal or business related. So for that reason alone, I really believe that people are always going to want to come into work. But there, you know, 
at the moment, there's a lot of, and I haven't read in depth all these reports, but there's a lot of futurists that are predicting that the mobile or sort of remote workforce is going to be like in full force and effect within, you know, 20, 30 years. And, you know, the question is, how is that going to change the office space landscape? I can't say that I have any ability to predict that far into the future. I, I think it's really hard to do that. And I certainly don't feel like I'm an expert. Um, what I can talk about in the context of today is that it's becoming a lot more competitive out there for talent, right? So mm -hmm. like, how is your office environment going to contribute to someone wanting to come and work for you? And I don't just mean like what it looks like. I mean like, what kind of culture, what kind of like ecosystem are you fostering within that space? And I think both companies and landlords alike have kind of put their hand up in one way or another and said, you know what, we don't necessarily understand the workplace experience in the way that we need to, to be able to attract and retain the best people. People who have lots of choices from, from a sort of what company do I go perspective and then also, you know, could go work at home or work in a coffee shop or be in a park. Like how, how do we get, how do we draw them in to make sure that they are checking in with each other on a personal and a business level, right? So what I've seen in the office space landscape lately is that these, these broadly referred to co-working providers, which I'd rather prefer, I'd rather call them flexible workspace providers mm -hmm. and even experience providers. Uh, companies like Convene, who I'm a massive fan of, you know, WeWork, who everybody obviously knows they've done an incredible job building a brand. Uh, Spaces, which is a, an IWG portfolio company. Most people would have probably heard of their legacy product, Regis. Mm. These companies are creating flexible workspace, which is really in vogue these days because people can't predict the growth trajectory of their businesses. But not only are they, are they doing that, they're also cultivating experience in ways that most companies can't. You know, like top, top companies like, let's say, Google, Salesforce, CIBC, really, really big enterprises have dedicated teams inside the organization to foster and build and culture and create dynamic environments. But for companies that are like 50 people, 100 people, 200, even 1,000 people, they don't really have the time, resources, or knowledge to be able to do that. And the landlord community hasn't been doing that for them either. They're not they're giving you a box in the sky, most of them, to go and build and construct and deal with on your own. And so they, they're in the business of like making, you know, buying good real estate in well-positioned locations and providing it at, you know, affordable and reasonable rates, right? Yeah. They're not in the experience business. So I think there's just a real shift occurring in that regard where we're going to start to see that, you know, maybe the landlords are going to start to do this better and maybe get into the experience business more. Maybe companies are going to be partnered with these flexible workspace providers to, you know, be part of the transactions that they do. So like, you know, maybe a Google, you know, goes with a convene and says to the landlord, yeah, I'm, I'm going to come do this deal with you for 500,000 square feet, but I want convene to have 100,000 square feet of that space to give me built in flexibility on part of my real estate footprint that I don't have visibility on that I don't want to sign a 10 year lease for but that also can maybe build experience for a subset of my company that I'm thinking they're going to be better at doing than me. Pretty incredible. And man, I, I totally agree with you. I think that there's always going to be a want to come into work, at least on a, a solid percentage, most likely the majority percentage of the workforce that's out there. Mm -hmm. I think the way the technology uh, industry is headed, that's also going to foster the need for exactly what you've just talked about 
and building those sorts of scenarios and the need for somebody like you to come in and create, help people or scale up or enterprise, create those dynamic work environments, mm-hmm. which is also why I love that like one sentence in the way you describe what you do, because I think that lends itself to the story behind like why people are really coming to you, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's what they, that's the end goal. That's the output that they would be looking for as somebody who is trying to build a culture or a company and really set themselves up for the next five, 10, 20 years that they see the vision and the company moving towards. Re- really fascinating. And I, I think the one area that I'd almost like to go a little bit deeper into, because I remember this as well, you touched on it, is just like prompting people to work together more, collaborate over projects, discussions, decisions in an in-person manner. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there is an an innate advantage when you're doing that in person more so than even maybe in person over like a FaceTime or Google Meet? One million percent. No question. And I mean, so like we're doing that right now. 100%. Our relationship is going to be deeper going forward by virtue of sitting here together and having a meaningful conversation. Like, think about how much deeper you're gonna get with your team. You know what I mean? Like, people are gonna do their best work when they feel safe and happy, you know what I mean? And connected to something that's bigger than just the specific job vocation that they have. And you can't do that remotely. You, people, we're, we're, you know, we're, um, we're connected creatures. We, we wanna be together. Right. Like I think it's amazing that that applications like FaceTime exist. It allows me to be connected to that guy that I won the poker tournament with who lives in California. And, you know, we can at least connect more meaningfully through that. So we're enhancing our ability to remotely connect. Yeah. But I don't think that like, you know, that doesn't do anything in comparison to what you need to do to build and scale and create amazing things. You can't do that in my mind remotely. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of people out there that are probably building amazing things through remote you know, companies. And I'm not denying that that's possible and that people can really excel at that, but I just don't think that it's human nature in general. And I don't think that most organizations would function at their highest and best purpose through doing that. Agreed. Apologize to the listeners for a quick little iPhone alarm there. Just wanna be cautious and make sure that I'm respecting David's time as he's a, a very busy guy. Um, and I wanna, get in the process of slowly moving towards wrapping this up, but there's definitely a couple more main questions that I want to ask you. And to the point that you just made, I think that there's like three things that I could share just quickly that absolutely indicate you're hundred percent right on that. Like one, my own personal experience with TrueFan working remotely versus being together um, when we consolidated first in Vancouver and now working together from uh, round 13 here in Toronto just made a vast difference in our productivity, um, the culture, the the team and the communication that we're able to you know see on a day-to-day basis um, rather than just through slack and the odd team meetings to you know some of the biggest companies in the world even though they may have tons of different office locations they have those locations um, the majority of fortune 500 companies and anything that's moving towards that point does and they don't even just stop there they actually will send people yeah. from offices to the other offices to make sure that they are connecting they're in person and there's more of those discussions. And three, even the ones like WordPress that don't have an office, they still have to plan like three, four, five types of things each year that brings everyone in their workforce together. Because otherwise you just cannot build some sort of sustainable culture that leads itself towards the scale of company or enterprise. Yep, totally agree. Um, So 
last thing is it relates totally to CBRE and and then going back towards your time as a poker player is just touching like because you are kind of in sales now mm-hmm. you, you've really climbed the ladder in a short period of time at mm-hmm. a pretty sizable company um, so kudos to you so like what are some of the habits um, and routines that have led you to do that and then as well some of the things that you've taken with you from the poker world um, whether it be psychology tactics or strategies um, yeah so I think the first thing I did when I landed in this organization was I I was really like a bit of a fly on the wall an observer um, I think that when you enter an organization you can't underestimate how important that is a lot of people I think come in and they have maybe an underlying insecurity that they want to prove their value, right? They want to show people why they're there and that they deserve to be there. And I think that often that can get you not in rapport with people, you know what I mean? Because you might jump the gun on saying something or doing something or, or you know, just like you're, you need time to build relationships with people and you need to see how everybody works from a rapport perspective, but then you can also figure out how to align yourself with the right people. So like, that's really the crux of why I am where I am today. I, I wouldn't be where I am were it not for the people that I've chosen to align myself with and then the people that I've consequently been part of hiring. So it started for me with my business partner, right? So I got the benefit of being in this administrative role where I got to meet and interact with all the salespeople on my floor. And that couldn't have been more valuable to me because I got to pick the person that was not only successful at what they did, but that more importantly aligned with values that were you know, resonating with me. So that partnership um, with him was kind of everything. Uh, it started things off for me. Um, then from a, like a tactics perspective, and, and I think I got asked this on the last podcast, you know, you know they kind of thought like, oh, maybe you play poker, you'd be impatient. It's like, well, it's quite the opposite. Like I, I know I had a lot of games going at a time, but I had to be so patient like in an individual game, you sometimes you got to wait and wait and wait before, you know, and you, you might think you're about to fucking die because your chips are dwindling so much. But then like in the in those some of those instances, waiting is what wins for you, right? Like waiting mm-hmm. is what catches you, catches a rush for you. So for me, like being patient, not only in um, getting, you know, new client pursuits, new pieces of business, but also patient in terms of building my partnership with my now business partner that I'm 50-50 with, like those two things were just so, so important to my success. And and I think in being patient, I've built the right long-lasting relationships with people. I kind of believe that sometimes my approach misses business opportunities in the short term because I'm never knocking down somebody's door aggressively. And there are some people that do what I do that, you know, they just bulldoze through and sometimes people have a real need and they go, like even though they, they might not be in rapport with the salesperson, that persistence will just kind of win out. Like I'm very persistent, but I think that if I took that tactic every single time with the people I was trying to do business with, a lot of the time it would actually fail, you know, or or I might get one deal, but I might not get the next one. So I've got this like sort of juxtaposition of like patience in building relationships with also being persistent at the same time, if that makes any sense. It 100% does. I think the mix of being persistent but also being willing to be patient is what can build you really long-term relationships, especially in the sales world, especially as it relates to B2B. Yeah. Like I could not agree more. And that was really well put. The 
CBRE forward platform that you created. I, I definitely want to touch on this really quickly. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that you probably have to run soon. Yeah, no problem. I got a bit of time. So okay. Okay. okay, cool. Um, so you seem like quite, like just going back on your career and your time as a poker player, you're almost a fan of identifying and creating opportunities out of the non-traditional. Mm-hmm. I like the way of putting that. Yeah, yeah I, I thought about that like the more I was just doing a bit of research and just like my time meeting you prior, it's fascinating to me. And I think that also speaks to what you've done with CBRE Forward. So can you tell people what CBRE Forward is? Yeah. And the reason why you've gone about it with, is it your business partner? Yeah. Who's the other co-founder? Cool. Yeah, uh, two of my business partners, actually. Oh, Dave cool. Bethel and Amy Calcutt. Um, Shout out so, to Dave and Amy. Yeah, totally. The, and it wouldn't be for Amy, actually. if we It wouldn't be for either of them, but Amy is, was really the catalyst to making it happen. Wow. Um, so yeah, so Seabury Forward is a platform that showcases the stories of Canada's innovation ecosystem. So I think we can kind of expand on it a lot more than where we are today, but I'm very proud of, of where we are today with it. So, you know, it's a bit of a community and it's a place where we, you know, do content with really amazing companies, notably in the innovation sector, getting them to tell their story of their business, talk, you know, maybe about how environment is contributing to their success and then think topics like, you know, what are the challenges and obstacles and opportunities that the Canadian tech landscape faces today as we get more notoriety on a global scale. So it's, it's a platform for Canadian founders to put their voice out on their business and on the broader ecosystem. And it's been great in that regard to sort of fulfill that initiative. That's kind of the, its benevolent purpose. Um, you're talking about the sort of non-traditional. One of the things that's bothered me about how my business functions is that it's super transactional in its nature, right? So like I have a client who has a need to like move offices or renew their lease or open up in a new city and like they want to talk to me like five times a day, you know what I mean, while that's happening. But then when that need kind of goes to the background, I have like very limited ability to like stay in rapport with them, right? Like what way can I add value to them when they don't have a need, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas I find maybe like if you're selling a product or something like that, you can often create more of a need in the moment. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you're wearing a hat right now. I could hopefully convince you if I had a better hat, like this is the hat you should wear. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And then maybe the next guy could do the same thing. Like we, we don't have that opportunity just based off of the fact that it's all geared around timing of a need. Right? So I was trying to think of ways in which I could stay connected to people when there was nothing to really talk about. And that started for me actually with creating some sponsorships and a, and a broader network. So. I'm connected to 111, which is um, a scale-up hub here in Toronto that, you know, has some of the best SaaS businesses that are, you know, scaling in it, and and we're we're a partner to them, and synergistic for us to help those companies as they grow. Yeah. And then I also got involved with Deloitte for their technology Fast 50 Awards program, where CBRE's come in as a sponsor, and it makes sense synergistically that we're there because a lot of the conversations these companies are having are around growth, right? 100%. So that kind of like you know way of networking that network effect was always what sort of appealed to me because I don't like to hard sell people I like opportunities to be able to like meet with them you know often in hopefully non-threatening threatening situations time and time again and build a relationship with them because it's the way I like to do business so I kind of had that piece in place and then I thought to myself like 
you know, real estate companies for as great as we are, or big companies for as great as we are, we brag all the time about ourselves. You know, we're always talking about ourselves. We're always putting out information that we think is relevant to our customers, and often it is, but sometimes it's not. So I kind of thought like, why wouldn't we do something that leverages the brand equity of a Fortune 100 company to tell the stories of our clients or even our prospects and use that as a platform to you know, help them, but also create a business opportunity that might not have been there in the first place through, through a more organic fashion where they're talking about their business to us. And you know, we have a natural way of reaching back out to them given what, you know, the information they just shared with us. Yeah. It's, it's a great idea. It goes with everything that has shifted the current landscape of technology and innovation to where we are right now. And I think that you're capitalizing on the rise of platforms like LinkedIn. Um, I, I mean, I can speak to LinkedIn in a second. I should clarify for the readers or for the listeners, what platforms or channels are you using right now to share those stories? Yeah, so we do have a website, cbrayforward.com where all that content lives. We do have a YouTube channel, same thing, it lives there. But I would say that the reach that's biggest is definitely coming on LinkedIn. No surprise, it's the blue ocean of social media for sure. B2B, and I'm sure you agree. Yeah. Um, so, so that's notably where the content is living, and it's coming from my company off of our company page, CBR Canada, but it's also being shared uh, organically by professionals within the organization like me where we're seeing obviously more organic reach. Yeah, yeah, and and you're taking advantage of that as well, and I think that also speaks to a little bit of the non-traditional, especially in your industry, mm-hmm. where the first time I met you, we met as a result of our interaction. I think you, you sent me a message after yeah. I put a piece of content out on LinkedIn, yeah. which I definitely appreciate, and mm-hmm. I'm glad we've been able to kind of spur on this relationship to the point where we are right now. Mm-hmm. What prompted you to start using LinkedIn because you said you might be one of the only people <laughs> in the commercial real estate space that is using it as a conduit to build a personal brand. Yeah, so I should clarify that there's a lot of real estate people that are on the platform that are putting content out, but I think most of what they're doing, and if any of you are listening, it's a bit braggy, you know what I mean? And it's just, it lacks value to the audience. They're sharing things like, you know, just leased this piece of space or just sold this building. It's it's like people don't care about that. It's not a meaningful insight, right? So I wouldn't say I'm the only one doing anything. I think I'm just probably one of the only people that's doing it from a different lens where I'm trying to provide sound, pi- sound bites of meaningful information to companies as they might be considering a real estate decision. So that's probably the main difference between it. And, and I'm hugely long on LinkedIn. Um, you know, when I started out selling, which wasn't even that long ago, it was like 2011, these platforms didn't exist. I was, I was sitting in a side room of my office looking at an Excel spreadsheet of what we call a stacking plan of a building, you know, like looking for like company names, Googling like the phone number, cold calling them or like, you know, getting an email like kind of randomly and, and just like throwing a dart at the board trying to figure out how to get in with a pursuit. Like now taking content aside from from LinkedIn, if I'm pursuing the CEO of a company, like 9.7 times out of 10, they're at least gonna be on there. They might not be an active, engaged member of the LinkedIn community, but they're at least gonna be on platform. And I'm gonna be, you know, I can be able to find out way more about who they are and what drives them, what they care about, than being able to go to their company website and just like read some sort of like high level bio about them. 
So there's such a better prospecting opportunity just from that perspective alone. You know, then thinking about the more meaningful ways you can engage. You know, you can send someone a direct message that's a video or a voice memo. You know, or you can engage with someone's content if they're active on LinkedIn. You can you can share a piece of your content privately through a message or tag someone in a post. Like the, the opportunities for engagement are just like endless, and it kind of lends more to my approach of just fostering relationships with people as opposed to trying to like hammer them with a sale. Yeah, and learning about the user, so to speak, um, or the buyer, you yeah. know, in many cases, and, and understanding what cuts through to them, like what's going to grab their attention. Uh, you spoke about value. Mm-hmm. That is the key to success, especially as it relates to LinkedIn and content on that platform. Mm-hmm. People don't get it. Like, I'm sorry, I wanted to say one thing. I'm walking down the street two days ago. I bump into a guy who I knew, you know, is a friend of a friend. He's moved companies recently. And he's like, hey, I've been watching all of your videos on, on, you know, real estate and we're about to need space. And like, you know, I'm gonna call you soon, right? Like you just never know who's watching. And like, if you're coming at it from the vantage point of value, you're gonna generate business from it. But like, even if you generated no business from it directly, you are fostering a much more powerful personal brand, which is gonna have like effects on your career one way or the other, both monetarily and in just in terms of like growth either inside your organization or new opportunities that might come up. So it's endless opportunities. Yeah, you dropped a lot of uh, knowledge bombs there and hopefully people pick up on them. We'll definitely try and share a few of these clips because I think it could be valuable for people in your industry. And I'll just put it out there. This My worthy rivals. <laughs> yeah, yeah, worthy rivals, exactly. Um, I'll put it out there because this isn't coming from you, but this is more or less the way I'd say it is you're the only one who's really doing it well. And I don't know the industry as a whole, for sure, but that's kind of what it sounds like to me, is that if you're out there and you are in the commercial real estate industry, if you're sharing content, if it's even a part of your work week, that either is from some sort of article aggregation or wherever you're getting the type of content that you're sharing, because a lot of it tends to be links. And if it's links, especially about your own company, understand that there's very little value for the people who are on the other end of that and that's probably why it's not reaching many people Mm -hmm. so consider what your objective is like david's talking about potentially a long-term relationship Mm -hmm. a customer in the future Mm -hmm. and consider what types of content might help you get there very simple equation um Look, I I think that is a good way to kind of get near the end here. One little part unrelated to work that I did want to talk about, although it definitely trickles down to your day-to-day routines, habits, and things like that, is values. Because you kind of touched on the importance of values and and really honing in on your values Mm -hmm. as a person. So just tell me, David, like, what are some of your core values as a human being? Um... I think that it's so important to be humble and vulnerable with people. You know what I mean? Like, so part of how I go about building relationships is I share of myself and I don't do it from a strategic place. Like I, I do it because it's, it's healing to me and it's expensive for me and it gets me into a more abundant sort of frame of mind. But by being vulnerable with people, I allow them to do the same. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, humility, you can't fake humility, right? Like you're going to like if if you're someone that gets to a high level of success, you're you're often going to have people that are in a competitive mindset that are 
trying to chip away at you. But the more genuinely humble that you are, the more easy it's going to be for that person to eventually not find a reason to have a problem with you, right? So those are two, two really, really important ones for me. And then from the point of view, you know, we're talking about sports, we're talking about competition, like I brought these things up along the way, like, you know, I try to think of competition really from the point of the vantage point of like worthiness of others and, and you know, that worthy rival instead of that competitor. Because unlike sport, well, I don't want to say unlike sport, you see the camaraderie that exists between, you know, we're just watching the Raptors and, uh, you know, um, play, right? You just, you just see even amongst their own competitors, guys picking each other up off the ground, things like that. Like clearly that exists in sport, but in business, like we're not even, we're not out there trying to like win. Do you know what I mean? Like we're out there trying to collaborate and create good outcomes for multiple parties. Yeah. Right. So if you're thinking of someone that you're trying to do a deal with as a competitor in any sense of the word, that could be your own client. And I've had that happen to me before where my client has felt like a competitor to me. Like if, if you're living in that space, you're just, you're never going to get to the highest levels. Business is a collaborative place where multiple people can win. So I never, I just look at people as worthy. I look at them at most as rivals and I'm trying to find a way to make everyone part of, you know, the, the collaborative story, the collaborative win. Well said, very well said. And thank you so much for taking the time this yeah. morning and being very flexible and scheduling this podcast. Yeah. I know I didn't really make it easy on you. Um, for anybody who wants to connect with you, potentially collaborate, mm-hmm. um, whether it be content or just reach out for potential advice as it relates to poker, business, uh, life as an executive at a mm-hmm. Fortune 500, Fortune 100 company, mm-hmm. uh, where can they find you? Where would you like them to find you? The best how? place definitely to find me is on LinkedIn, for sure. I could give you other places, but just find me on LinkedIn. Cool. Well, <laughs> we'll link that in the show notes. And David, it was a pleasure chatting with you. I'll FaceTime you from the WSOP yeah. final table. Man, <laughs> I would actually love for you to FaceTime me from the Rio and just show me what's going on, even just for a minute. So go over the Rio. You know, just, just go there for 30 minutes just to check out the energy. It's it's palpable. I'm a fan of poker as well, so I'll definitely be going. I, w- I did not know that it was going to be on while I'm there, but it just makes me that much more excited to yeah. go now. Yeah. yeah, right on. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, pleasure, man. Yeah. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Wow, that's it. You made it to the end. And thank you so much for choosing to listen to the Fans First podcast today. If you enjoyed the episode, loved the guest, or learned something new, please tell us. Subscribe and leave a review, or tag us in a story on Instagram with the hashtag Fans First so more people can find the podcast and enjoy it like you did. Otherwise, I highly suggest that if you want to meet David or have a quick chat with him, potentially bounce something off of him, maybe you're interested in commercial real estate, who knows, but I would highly suggest reaching him on LinkedIn. If you choose to find him on any social media platform, that is where he is the most active and he produces some wicked content on that platform. So I'd suggest following him there too. You can find me by searching Scott Birdie on any of the platforms, um, specifically Instagram, if you want to tag me since you enjoyed the podcast. This podcast is made possible by TrueFan, and believe me, I am grateful to be the beneficiary of this company podcast. Look up T-R-U-F-A-N on social media or the internet nearest you to learn more about our web platform and services. If you have questions regarding today's show or recommendations for future episodes, 
please do hit me up, send a personalized connection request on LinkedIn, an email, whatever is the most convenient for you. But I'd love to hear from you and try and incorporate some of those ideas into the podcast. Otherwise, I'll look back to connecting with you soon and come back for more. Thanks. Thanks.